We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. Gonna take it right What's World War Three going to look like? Not that I want to see. It's not going to look like anything we've ever seen before. One of the hottest selling books amongst the top level people at the Pentagon since 2016 has been Ghost Fleet, written by P.W. Singer and August Cole. These guys aren't the writers of your typical boy-man political war thrillers like Tom Clancy's Red Storm Rising. Singer is a consultant to the US military, the intelligence community, and even Hollywood. Maybe that counts for more than the other two. Just kidding. Most stuff that comes out of Hollywood, as far as authenticity is concerned, is absolute rubbish. Singer's top-selling non-fiction book is Wired for War. It's about the robotics revolution and how warfare is likely to develop in this century. August Cole, the co-writer for Ghost Fleet, is a writer, analyst and consultant and was a former defence industry reporter for the prestigious Wall Street Journal. He's also a senior fellow with the Atlantic Council, a think tank that looks at our world at the international level and how things will develop. Cole's focus is on exploring the future of warfare. In their novel, Ghost Fleet, they look at how they imagine World War III could start and how that war would be fought. It's a terrifying story. I'll be talking about that in this and my following program. I'm going to talk about how World War III is going to start at some time in the future. It might be good to go back and have a look at how, at least until recently, we thought World War III would look. A nuclear war between the great powers, the United States, China and Russia in particular. In the Stanley Kubrick movie, Dr. Strangelove, George C. Scott, as General Buck Turgeson, gives some good practical advice to Peter Sellers as President of the United States, Merkin Muffley about how to handle a tricky situation that had developed. Insane Brigadier General Jack D. Ripper had given the attack signal for the American B-52 Strategic Command bombers under his command to launch an all-out nuclear attack on the Soviet Union. The crews believed the signal to be true and that a state of war existed with the Soviet Union. And they were acting on their orders by pressing home an attack with their nuclear payloads on Russia. What will happen next? When the Russians realise that they are being attacked, even inadvertently, will they launch an all-out nuclear attack with all of their forces against the United States? Is everyone's worst nightmares from the 1950s until the 1980s about to come true? The end of the world. 
This is where George C. Scott, a man to see a silver lining in every cloud, even in this one, gives some very practical advice to the President about how he should handle the situation. Here's what he had to say. Mr. President, there are one or two points I'd like to make, if I may. Go ahead, General. One, our hopes for recalling the 843rd bomb wing are quickly being reduced to a very low order of probability. Two, in less than 15 minutes from now, the Ruskies will be making radar contact with the planes. Three, when they do, they are going to go absolutely ape, and they're going to strike back with everything they got. Four, if, prior to this time, we have done nothing further to suppress their retaliatory capabilities, we will suffer virtual annihilation. Now, five. If, on the other hand, we were to immediately launch an all-out and coordinated attack on all their airfields and missile bases, we'd stand a damn good chance of catching them with their pants down. Hell, we got a five-to-one missile superiority as it is. We could easily assign three missiles to every target and still have a very effective reserve force for any other contingency. Six, an unofficial study which we undertook of this eventuality indicated that we would destroy 90% of their nuclear capabilities. We would therefore prevail and suffer only modest and acceptable civilian casualties from the remaining force which would be badly damaged and uncoordinated. General... It is the avowed policy of our country never to strike first with nuclear weapons. Well, Mr. President, I would, I would say that General Ripper has already invalidated that policy. <laughs> that was not an act of national policy, and there are still alternatives left open to us. Mr. President, we are rapidly approaching a moment of truth, both for ourselves as human beings and for the life of our nation. Now, truth is not always a pleasant thing. But it is necessary now to make a choice, to choose between two admittedly regrettable, but nevertheless distinguishable post-war environments. One where you got 20 million people killed, and the other where you got 150 million people killed. You're talking about mass murder, General, not war. Mr. President, I'm not saying we wouldn't get our hair mussed, but I do say no more than 10 to 20 million killed, tops, uh, depending on the breaks. I will not go down in history as the greatest mass murderer since Adolf Hitler. Perhaps it might be better, Mr. President, if you were more concerned with the American people than with your image in the history books. I don't know about you, that sounds like pretty good advice, losing just 20 million Americans instead of 200 million. All a bit like the Cuban Missile Crisis between October and November 1962. During that crisis, Curtis LeBay, the commander of the United States Air Force, the man who had ordered the firebomb raid on Tokyo on the night of 19 March 1945 that had killed 100,000 people, told President Kennedy that he had to bomb Cuba. LeMay said, We don't have any choice but direct military action. I see no other solution. Kennedy rejected LeMay's advice. Curtis LeMay is the man who George C. Scott's character, General Buck Turgidson, was modelled on. Scary stuff. The entire world being dangerously exposed to being wiped out by nuclear war, snuffed out in a moment. Was it really that dangerous? Here's the civil defence song from America during the Cold War years. In Australia, it was the same naive, 
drill. This is no joke. The government thought the public was really this dumb. Time to duck and cover, the bombs are coming down. A radiation shower will pour throughout your town. Hands over your head, deep low to the ground. Time to duck and cover, the bombs are coming down. Duck and cover, duck and cover. Get under the desk with your sister and your brother. Duck and cover, duck and cover. That goes double for your dad and your mother. So hands over your head, keep low to the ground. Cause all the kids that don't will cease to be around. Duck and cover to survive a nuclear war. If only the Japanese in Hiroshima and Nagasaki had had more tables, more people might have survived. But maybe, just maybe, we were a lot safer in those years of the Cold War than we are today. The Americans and Russians then had enough nuclear weapons to kill everyone on the planet many times over. The policy was known by the acronym MAD. It stood for Mutual Assured Destruction. If anyone starts a nuclear shooting war, everyone will be dead. In his book Apocalypse Never, scientist Michael Schellenberger looks at just how much danger of annihilation the world was actually in during the Cold War. Or was it? The potential for nuclear weapons to cause mass destruction of people, buildings and infrastructure has haunted the world since the atomic bombs were first used on Japan in 1945. But how justified is our fear? The Austrian Jewish scientist Viktor Weisskopf, who had escaped the Nazis, was talking about the potential for mass killing of the atomic bomb one night during the time that he was working on its development at Los Alamos. Viktor Weisskopf told Michael Schellenberger what Neil Bors, the famous Danish scientist who had arrived during this discussion, said about the bomb. Surprisingly, even before the first bomb was used against people, Neil Bors wasn't worried about it. He said that nuclear weapons were a fundamental change in our relationship with the natural world. Inevitably, he said, it's going to change the way nation states relate to each other. They will no longer be able to dominate one another. Now it would be possible for even a small state to deter a large state that wanted to dominate it. Of course, there was a dark side. But Weisskopf said the fact that there's been no nuclear war since 1945 shows how correct war was. Let's take a look at that. The good thing that came out of the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962 was that afterwards America and Russia worked together to set up ways to manage their relationship to avoid this happening again. Feelers were put out to China as well. It seems likely that nuclear weapons have kept the world so far from having another world war. Far more significantly, nuclear weapons have stopped the major powers going into conventional war with each other. You can see why there would have been a conventional war in Europe. For example, when you look at the balance of land forces of the Warsaw Pact against NATO. During the Cold War, the West had just over 6,000 tanks, while the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact had over 16,000. Russia could have overrun the West in a couple of days using only conventional weapons. 
The British Army on the Rhine, the main army that England deployed in Germany as part of its NATO commitments, expected to be wiped out within 24 to 48 hours of a major Soviet attack. Probably the only thing that kept Russia at bay was the tactical and strategic nuclear weapons of the West, and how a conventional war was almost certainly going to escalate into a full, all-out nuclear war. John Lewis Gaddis, one of America's leading historians on the Cold War, in a 1986 speech that he delivered, said, It seems inescapable that what has really made the difference in inducing this unaccustomed caution has been the workings of the nuclear deterrent. Michael Schellenberger tells us in his book, Apocalypse Never, that the intensity and scale of major wars had risen in fits and starts for 500 years from the wide-scale introduction of firearms and artillery in the 1400s until the death toll from battles and wars peaked in World War II at tens of millions of military and civilian deaths, and then from a post-war peak of more than 500,000 deaths in 1950. Battle deaths in 2016 were 84% lower, despite a tripling in the world population. There are fears about countries with nuclear armaments that aren't major powers using their nuclear weapons in a much more dangerous way. But these fears haven't been realised. India and Pakistan are both nuclear powers. Despite having many conventional border wars, neither side has launched nuclear weapons. The religious motivations and deep hostilities between these two countries support Michael Schellenberger's view that nuclear weapons are preventing wars. Another US expert said, Many of the political, technical and situational roots of stable nuclear deterrence between the United States and the Soviet Union may be absent in South Asia, the Middle East or other regions to which nuclear weapons are spreading. The founder of the think tank International Relations, Kenneth Waltz, said that the idea of humans ever doing away with nuclear weapons is fanciful. He said that if two nations dismantled their atomic bombs and then went to war with each other, they would simply re-enter the mad scramble to rearm. When a New York Times reporter asked Robert Oppenheimer, the man known as the father of the atomic bomb, how he felt after the bomb was tested on July 16, 1945, he said, Lots of boys, not grown up yet, will owe their life to it. I think he's been proven right. Maybe it's time for Australia to get nuclear weapons in the face of the growing Chinese threat to us and the rest of its neighbours, and the use of brutal military force, if necessary, to achieve its delusional dreams to having a right to rule the world. The history of small countries relying on big countries to honour commitments to protect them have proved disappointing almost always. Look at the Munich crisis in 1938. Look at Israel's experiences with the United States in various Arab-Israeli wars. Look at the Ukraine, 
which handed over all of the nuclear weapons it had at the end of the Cold War on the assurance of all of the countries surrounding it, including Russia, that they would guarantee its borders. But there's a different kind of world war that will be happening in our present times. In my next program, I'm going to tell you all about that. Thanks for joining me, Paul, in The Danger Zone. If you have any questions about anything in this program, maybe you could catch up with me for my guided tour at the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum at Smithfield on Saturday mornings, starting at 10.30am. Probably the world's best guided tour of an armour and artillery museum anywhere in the world, borrowing the Danish Carlsberg beer slogan. If you liked this program, you will definitely be intrigued and fascinated by my other program, mysteriously called CYKIAE, whatever that means.